Hello, Dave from the Doctor Who Show here. In this episode, we're going to give you, the listeners, another instalment in our Alternate Galaxy series where we look at different shows that maybe fans of Doctor Who have come across and enjoy or maybe would like to learn more about. Now, this is going to be a slightly different episode because it isn't just myself and the Doctor Who show, and Rob actually isn't part of this, but we have got guests from other Australian Doctor Who podcasts joining us, in particular Nathan and James from Flight Through Entirety and Stephen from New to Who. Now, how this all came about was all of us have been chatting in various chat groups and we all revealed how much we loved Press Gang and what fond memories we have of the show from when we were younger. And so we made an agreement that the next time we were all in the same place at the same time, we would record a podcast episode about Press Gang. And this is it. Now, as well as reminiscing about Press Gang and looking in depth at five episodes, one from each season, we also are looking at it through the prism of Doctor Who fans and looking at what this Stephen Moffat series tells us about how he would go on to write Doctor Who as the showrunner. The final thing I'll say before we get into it is this wasn't recorded in the usual way. It is literally us having a conversation in a hotel room around a microphone. So if the sound quality isn't what you'd normally expect from us, I do apologise, but hopefully that's made up for by the uh, more natural conversational style of the episode. So with all that said, let's have a chat about Press Gang. Welcome to the new to flight through the Doctor Who show special on Press Gang. I'm Dave. I'm Stephen. I'm Nathan. I'm James. And we are here to talk about the television show Press Gang. I could give you a convoluted technical reason, but it's basically because we want to. (laughs) (laughs) So for those who aren't aware, Press Gang was a television show made in the UK, but broadcast here. It went for 43 episodes across five series from 1989 to 1993. Now, James, this was originally your idea to talk about this. <laughs> so I'll throw to you first, why are we talking about Press Gang? I, re- I just love this show. I, I've loved it since I was a child. I, I think it's where I fell in love with Stephen Moffat's writing, before I knew it was Stephen Moffat's writing. And I think it's still some of his best work. What about you guys? Uh, well, for me, it's part of that ABC afternoon television televisual landscape, I guess. So coming home from school and throwing your bags down in the hall and just being able to sit there and watch any manner of things that, you know, inter- invariably were intelligent and aimed at kids, but didn't treat kids like they were, well, stupid, essentially. And Press Gang is definitely one of those types of shows, as is Doctor Who, as is The Goodies, as is a whole bunch of other stuff that was on at that time slot the ABC, on the ABC. We're talking sort of like ooh, early 90s, late, yeah. late 80s even. It's something that's actually missing from a lot of kids' TV. Like programs aimed at children are much lower. Safer? Yeah, much safer, much 
much more dumbed down. Not all of them. I wonder if that if that's true. If we would know that, you know. Well, yeah, okay. I mean, maybe I, maybe I don't know that now. But when I went to the ABC shop for like ten years, yeah, there was a, certainly a sort of like downward spiral of uh, like the I guess the complexity of the plots mm-hmm. that I noticed because it was constantly on the TV yeah. in, in the yeah, shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my opinion. Obviously, I'm a grumpy old man. So, <laughs> I think there might be something in that, James, though, because the only other show that I can think of from the 90s that was on in that time slot that sort of matched it for cleverness was Daria. Um, and apart from that, yeah, there wasn't anything as as clever, as, I guess, as press game. I don't know, because I, I was thinking about this before. So for our listeners outside of Australia, this press game was broadcast on the afternoon show, which was, I think magazine show is too generous. It was basically just a... Covering format mm. for what's the know, closest? Young, young what's TV? the closest non-Australian? I've got no idea. Yeah, no, but it's like having um, Joyce Grenfell introduce the next TV program. You know, yeah. us, you know, it, it was a very <laughs> except she's a blonde surfy <laughs> and we yeah, ended up on. Right. And I was filling <laughs> that gap sort of between genuine like children's TV and the family viewing. So at six o'clock, mm. goodies or Doctor Who yeah. repeats or gets Minister or kingdom appearances would come on. Um, but from five <laughs> to six, they had all these sort of young adult shows, and it was stuff like. You can't do that on television. Oh. Degrassi Junior High, Mysterious yeah, yeah. Cities of Gold, uh, The Ghost of Motley Hall, got to repeat. Have you but watched the new series of Mysterious Cities of Gold from a few years ago? I have, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you look at something like You Can't Do That on Television, or even Degrassi Junior High back in the day. Degrassi, yeah. They actually were also pretty Not full on in the well, stuff that they, they, they talked about. Yeah, yeah, you're right. In fact, I think Degrassi and Press Gang probably superficially look quite similar. You know, mm. it's a young adult thing where there are issues and stuff. Mm. And I guess the difference... So one is British and one's Canadian. Well, uh, also, I think that one is is really funny. I mean, you <laughs> the know, other it's one's Degrassi. <laughs> <laughs> the other one's Degrassi. I mean, does Stephen Moffat is you know, goes straight from here to write several sitcoms. And, you know, this is the first thing he ever wrote. He's like 25 when he starts writing it. You know, he's writing it in his late 20s. And I believe he's still a teacher on Lee or his dad's Mm. a teacher or something. So his father was a headmaster and he himself had been a teacher. And it explains some of his sort of obsessions with teaching, including that whole kind of long-running plot in series eight of Doctor Who, where we move back to the school... Mm. It's something he knows. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, his next thing will be Chalk, which is a sitcom, you know, set in a school, which I've never seen. And then he moves on to... I do don't it. have it on Plex. <laughs> that would be why I haven't seen it. And uh, and then he moves on to sort of sex comedies with, like, Joking Apart and then Coupling, whereas, which is his most famous thing. And mm. puts it all together and creates Riversong. Yeah, yeah. Who is a professor who likes sex. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's that thing, you know... Um, Stephen Moffat in Doctor Who is sometimes doing his A-game and sometimes he's sort of writing things in his sleep, but he's so whip-smart and he writes such funny dialogue and that's the thing that makes press games stand out. Yeah, it, it is... On your first viewing, like my memory going back right back is just how clever it was and how funny it was. When I went back and watched it as an adult for the first time when the DVDs came out, I noticed the tones underneath it, which I think is what we're all going to be talking about with the episodes we've picked. But yeah, watching him is really interesting and we're obviously going to be having a very heavy Doctor Who slant on this because we're <laughs> doing Doctor Who podcast and there was a heavy Doctor Who slant in it anyway well that's right we'll talk about that as well. <laughs> uh, and you know from my point of view when I talk about Moffat I want sort of as an exercise write down 
my 12 favourite new series episodes and my 12 least favourite new series episodes and Moffat have written half of both lists yeah. which I think sums him up perfectly yeah. not that they were bad they just were like this is just missed the mark for me Yeah, and that's I think what happens here sometimes as well there are ones you go what he's doing is really clever and really well done but wow he's missed the mark on this yeah. one yeah. or at least he's not writing to me well yeah exactly and, and certainly something with the character of Linda that I think will be drawing out across the, the conversation as well is there are times when she's brilliantly written and there are times when she's actually I would say quite problematic yeah. in the way that she's written yeah and we should mention of course that that's Julia Sawala who yes. is now still quite famous and we know synonymous her absolutely <laughs> absolutely fabulous and so on and she is extraordinary and I think that, that seeing her in that show is probably what hooked me that was before yeah, it was definitely before Absolutely Fabulous that I yeah, saw Yeah, I, I think Absolutely mm. Fabulous does. Starts in 93. Starts in 92. Yeah. 92. 93 yeah. on there, there is an overlap. Yeah, yeah. And then there's Dexter Fletcher, who's acting in this was so good he wanted to become a director. Well, in fact, yeah. a lot of people... <laughs> and appear in a Kylie Minogue video. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, he's looking a bit rough these days. But, um... Um, <laughs> but, uh, but some of so, like quite a few people have gone on to act you know Gabrielle Anwar mm, yes, Centre of um, Women with Al Pacino yeah, yeah yeah Lucy Benjamin still mm. acts um, uh, Lee, Lee Ross, Ross who was in famously disappeared <laughs> mid episode in Curse, Curse of the Black Spot <laughs> <laughs> uh, even, even the guy who plays the photographer in the one series Charlie Creed Miles yeah he's got a huge career right yeah. I actually found them uh, Maloki Christie on Twitter. Is he still pretty? No, he is. He looks the same. He's he shaves <laughs> his head, uh, but he looks pretty much the same. And he's a producer, so a lot of his stuff was about um, TV and sound production. He's got less Twitter followers than me. I thought I <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he does seem very nice, and people occasionally interact with him about press gang, which is oh, kind of sweet. Well, let's dive in then. So what we've decided to do is we're going to discuss five episodes, one from each series, and each of us will be taking lead for one of those, and there's another one which is just a group pick for reasons that will become obvious when we get to it. <laughs> so I'm actually going to kick us off here with an episode from series one called Monday, Tuesday, which is the 11th episode of the show and first went out on the 3rd of April, 1989. Now, I picked this for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's a very good piece of television and the writing stands up really well. Uh, number two is I think it's possibly the first example ever of a proto-timey-wimey writing mm. from, from Moffat in that it actually goes through and the events of Monday are discussed on about via a conversation happening on Tuesday and it swaps between the two it's, of them. It's very in media res. It, it really it's is. It's constantly flipping backwards and forwards. It which is, which for 1989 TV, children's TV, was not yes. common at all. Yeah. Plus, it also, I think, is a very good place to introduce Linda. So, the one sentence summary is that a young student wants to get on the writing team of the Junior Gazette and decides to blackmail his way on there by uh, essentially alerting the principal and the local newspapers that they are news team are doing some dodgy stuff to try and get out of school to work on the paper <laughs> and how the team deal with that. Look, I really enjoy this. It's one of the top two or three episodes of the show for me. Mm. Guys, what's your memory of it and what do you think watching this one? I think it's incredibly clever and it's really, really brilliantly heartbreaking as well. So it's not just a, you know, a formally clever episode, um, but it also sort of culminates in this just amazing emotional moment. And 
in fact, part of the thing that it's about is about telling the events. They all gather on Tuesday to tell the events of Monday, and it's that telling as much as the events themselves that causes Linda to realise that she's done something really terrible and she sort of storms off in the middle of it. And I guess my favourite thing about it is there's a comedy B-plot in it in on Monday and that's a normal thing in a press gang episode you would normally expect exactly. there to be a comedy B-plot but it turns out Spike, who's Linda's love interest is telling the comedy B plot in order to derail mm. the A plot in order to prevent Linda from getting you know, to the conclusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. so good. <laughs> because I've been given the last episode that we're going to talk about, um, I did, I watched that first, and for reasons we will go into later, that gave this episode a lot more mm. meaning and. It's real. I mean, the the fact that I mean the, the the events in this story resonate with that character for another four seasons, and that that's you know I mean that's that's classic Moffat. You know, let's go back to something that I talked about four years ago. Mm. Did Linda um, wrestle with that throughout the series? Well, no, not really. There is it's a, a second last episode of a series, and the second last episode of a series is the one where you know, everyone's at their kind of lowest possible ebb. And so she actually leaves a note at the end of the episode saying, I'm going away. And then the final episode, which is called uh, Shouldn't I Be Taller, sees her nowhere to be found. And I think Spike has to go and sort of find her and persuade her to go back to the paper. Mm -hmm. And there's another comedy B-plot as well at the same time. And and it is interesting. So let's have a chat about Linda. Because Linda Day, played by Julius Wahala, is very much the lead character of this entire show, the show's about her, and early in season one she's shown to be a very difficult person, very arrogant in some ways, very dismissive in some ways, but when you realise that she's actually playing a 15-year-old character, you sort of go, well, she's just being a (laughs) 15-year-old, and then she deals with what happens in this, so look, we we can probably give spoilers to something that's about 30 years old. (laughs) Watch the episode first. (laughs) If you have no idea what we're talking about... pause it, then come back. (laughs) So welcome, welcome back. back. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So yeah, look, look. The fact that Linda is the last person to talk to a boy who commits suicide is something that's very confronting for her. And let's face it, she wasn't pleasant to him, but she was, in my view, unpleasant in the way that teenagers are unpleasant. They're they're, sure. they're, I, they're unsympathetic. I think she was also completely reasonable in like she could have been much harsher in the way she responded to him. He's trying to blackmail her. And all she says is, I want you to think about, you know, what sort of person you are, because right now you're not nice to know. And and there's a lot of attempts by... So it's, it's a, you know, it's a junior version of a newspaper and there's an editor, Matt, who's in charge of both papers and he's a, you know, kind of father figure, I guess. We never see Linda's father. No. Sort of. There is a there's a sort of joke about it in one episode, but he, he's a kind of father figure, and he assures her and explains to her that it isn't her fault, that she needs to be nicer to people, but she can't blame herself for um, his suicide. And I think that's also flagged by Moffat in the writing of the line of the character as well, where he says there won't be a Tuesday, oh. and, and he says that twice. He says it obviously just before you know, mm. committing the act, but actually before that in the office on the Monday. 
when they're first talking about uh, you know the writing that he's yeah it's he's very meta it's very meta though yeah. like it's not it's not it's that they they'd already cancelled Tuesday, but then Tuesday was cancelled because he killed himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then he's referring to himself dying as well as. So I think he's actually yeah. made his mind up actually before those events that he's at an all time low based on the things that are happening. And you know, uh, the owner of the newspaper says to Linda, "Look, you know, it wasn't because of you. And in fact, there's stuff that was happening in his own life. Mm. Um, so it's, it, in a way, it sort of." deals with that issue of teenage suicide and whatever else. And, and if you look at the way the character's portrayed, I think very, very well. David yeah. Jeff, David Jeff is the mm. character. That's right, yeah. He's incredibly troubled all the way through it. Yeah. Mm. And as a kid, I don't think you necessarily get that. But watching him as an adult, you yeah. totally appreciate this is a kid who is... It's quite a subtle... In a it's place. quite a subtle mm. acting job from that actor. And this is the thing, is, is that because he's a child actor not getting, getting the depth of it, or is it because he's actually... Oh, I like to think it's like um, the kids in Stand By Me, the producer just yelled at them for half an hour. <laughs> it's just really sad on set. Sparkle! With Linda, I mean, a lot of the show is about what sort of person she is and is she a monster? Because, you know, it's the tail end of the 80s and she is often, you know, sort of power dressing and, and the, has, you know, one of the regular characters, Colin, is a very sort of 80s and also a very sort of kind of... He's London. a young Arthur Daly. Yeah, he and is. very like, Thatcherite in his Yeah, yeah. He's And so yeah. it's... So there is all of that stuff there and she's like super driven and super ambitious and incredibly mm. intelligent uh, and kind of a bit mean to people one of the things I noticed watching this all the way through is how often people threaten to kill one another <laughs> 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 you know like she'll say to Colin you know thanks Colin you know just die. I hope he dies soon. Well, yeah, <laughs> die soon. You know, like it's all... <laughs> die soon, Colin. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I don't think you'd do that now. But, like, I'm not sure that that's... It, it, look, it becomes something that Moffat's obsessed with, and you can see it in the way that he writes Amy when he yes. takes over Doctor Who. Yeah. He clearly wants another Linda... Then he should have just called Julius a Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. No, that's because of fatal death, isn't it? <laughs> but is it also because, and this is sort of like a long-standing theory of mine, that Linda Day, like many of his other female characters, is actually a, a manifestation of his own side of his personality and counterbalanced by the Lee Ross character, Kenny Phillips, yeah. who's also what, maybe how he'd like to see the way that he, that he is. A lot of his writing, you know, even in Doctor Who, is about, you know, because I think he's he sees himself as the Doctor as well. Yeah, yeah. Is about men being uh, problematic and bad at, at relationships sure. and kind of horrible and all of that kind of thing. <laughs> and so he makes the woman the sort of driven, ambitious one and the man the one who does all the emotional labour in the relationship and we'll and see more of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of the reasons why I'm not unsympathetic to Linda but less sympathetic to Linda, and, and I throw this out as much for debate as anything, is that she did have within her power to read David's work and not be dismissive of him. Yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) And and, and, and let's not forget, she's angry at him for blackmailing 
them because there is something to blackmail them about. Yeah. They, mm. they have been forging homework, they have been mm. forging absence notes. She is guilty before the blackmail. And she's seen doing stuff like that later, like tearing up people's work and telling them that they're on window duty for the next week. And, you know, someone says, well, you didn't read it. And she's, yes, but my windows need cleaning. You know, she's <laughs> like, she's yes. dismissive and horrible. And, uh, you know. and, and as the series goes on, sometimes she'll let us into that thinking where she says, well, I know the second draft will be better, so might we'll just get there first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which is interesting. But, but yeah, you know, like she, she, she is at times at fault, which means that our uh, guest actor David Collins, or she should say recurring character, mm, David yeah, Collins, yeah. who Headmaster. plays Headmaster Winters, yeah. gets to have a few nice lecturing moments, yeah. which reminds us that this is actually a drama or about school kids, yeah. which in some episodes you kind of... When do they leave school? So End of season three, I think it is. Yeah. yeah. So series series two ends with uh, them deciding that they're going to r- continue running the paper after leaving school. Oh, that's right. Then um, there's a you know there's a big kind of. Uh, a huge cliffhanger at the end of series two and so those first two series are all shot on film they're all shot on location mm. uh, there's a lot of school stuff there's some great school characters and eventually I think we miss that a little bit in the later series yeah you might be right yeah so that's all I've got to say but just to sum up this is a, still an incredibly impactful moment mm. and and that line where you hear the bang and somebody says oh what was that and Spike says oh he must have banged a rat yeah. Yeah. that's Brilliant, uh, but horrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. Then, as you said, see, you know, lines like where he's, he's you know, they're saying goodbye to David, having lectured him, and he says, "That's right, I forgot there isn't going to be a Tuesday." Yeah. And that's a chilling line. Yeah. When you know what's coming. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And that's the thing. I, I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten that this episode was the the one in which he kills himself. So when I watched the season finale. And we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I was. It, 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 it gave it a lot more. Yeah. Weight. All right. Well, that's our discussion of our season one representative, Monday, Tuesday. Stephen, you're going to give us our episode from season two. Right, and it is going back to Jasper Street. It's season two, episode three. Um, and there's two reasons why I picked this one. One is entirely personal and still resonates to this day. And the second is the fact that it is, I think, one of the, the best scripted uh, stories out of all of the five seasons. I might deal with the sort of technical aspects first before delving into the personal. Nathan, you've mentioned before that there's an A plot and a B plot in this. And I, I think that's sort of classic of all of the, uh, the press uh, game run. The A plot is, is actually really simple but incredibly touching. And the B-plot is just a comedy and a farce between Colin and Spike's characters and, and a poor girl called Lucy Grogan, which doesn't really go anywhere and it's a little bit horrible as well. Um, <laughs> but that seems to be sort of like the way in which Press Gang's sort of structured. The, the A-plot, and, and I think I might just go into spoilers because it is, as you say, a 30-year-old show, it's essentially the story of really a lifelong friendship between Linda and, and, and Kenny. And it f- flashes back to, to 10 years prior to, to where they are in the modern setting to when they were kids and Linda running off uh, a couple of streets away, it turns out, to an old lady's house, Mrs Williams, where having, having been lost, she's sort of taken in and taken care of and, and Kenny is ever reliable and wonderful and protective of Linda shows up at the door and, and you know, fetches her back. <laughs> and it's just a, a sort of beautiful meditation on their friendship but also, I guess, on the artefact that sort of comes from this, which is this wood carving 
and that sort of kicks off the, the reminiscence of that and, and going and the going back to Jasper Street as well. We sort of said that it was timey wimey, and again, Stephen Moffat sort of does this right from the start. We saw it in Monday, Tuesday, we see it again here. There's this beautiful sort of interplay and a lovely mess on scene where, where the young Linda's walking down the street, you know, dragging a stick along a fence, and then you sort of zoom in, I think it's on the stick or something like that, or on the feet, and then it zooms back out, and it's, you know, the growing up Linda yeah. as well. Yeah. And that's just a sort of lovely sort of playing with the passage of time and, you know, memory and all of that kind of stuff, which is just beautiful in this. And that relationship between Linda and Kenny is really what, what gets me. And there's that incredible scene, and again, the sort of flashing back, back between the, the young kid actors and Julia Sawala and Lee Ross. And, um, you know, you can see Kenny coming down the road following Linda... And it is just so heartbreakingly beautiful. I, that was the moment where I cried. Yeah. Because, I mean, what happens is the story of six-year-old Linda going missing progresses as Linda remembers the story. <laughs> That's happened. right. She doesn't initially remember the story. And, and we get to see it as she gets to remember it. Yeah. And there's one bit where... Kenny turns up at the door to find her and it's his birthday and so he's dressed in a plastic knight's thing. He's With got a feather on the helmet. He's got because he's her white knight That's he right. comes to save her. And so he's in an armour and a little plastic sword and he's so cute. Um, and she goes, You're following me, you always follow me. Yeah. And 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 Julia Sawala remembers this and smiles and looks back. And and he's following her yeah. again it to is. make sure she's okay. And that's just a gorgeous sort of meditation on their friendship. Well, she actually, I think, remembers it. Remembers as it. As she's walking down the road. Yeah. As she's walking down yeah, the road, yeah. stops, yeah. then looks over her shoulder, yeah. and then sees him, and, and then smiles. smiles. Yeah. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, I mean, it's, it yeah. And the reason why that means so much to me, sort of to bring it onto a personal level, is that's my relationship with my sister. She's my best friend. and we live in different cities and we always sort of, are, you know, keeping in touch with one another. But, you know, there's no doubt that, you know, you do anything for that person who is your best friend in all the world. And I'll always follow. Lee Ross doesn't come back after series. Yeah. Um, uh, series two? Well, no, he's in series three. Oh, sure. But, yeah, yeah, he's not in series four and five, which I think are shot together um, at the end. I just couldn't buy that he would leave her, yeah. you know, because he's an adult, you know, the family moves to Australia, Australia or whatever. Yeah. But that Jasper Street thing, you know, mm. just their relationship, just the way that he's there to save her. And usually he's there to save her from being horrible. <laughs> it's his birthday. She comes, little tiny Linda comes downstairs with a present and he says, it's my birthday. And she says, no, it isn't. <laughs> She doesn't. She hides the present. She buries it in that garden. Then she found it like five years later. (laughs) But but the very last line of it is him saying, "It's my birthday," and she's she says, "No, it isn't," because she's horrible to him all the time, and he's just so spectacularly supportive of her, and you can see it. It's one of those things too. You know, you, you kind of think a, a writer discovers something about their characters as they're writing and once they see them on screen and stuff. There's a very season two episode in the sense mm. that Moffat has seen how Lee and Julia interact yeah. and can now write an episode about what their relationship's <laughs> like. It's beautiful. So I have a confession about this episode. 
when I watched it for this podcast, that's only the second time I've watched it as an adult. Oh. The first time being when I bought the DVD. And the reason for that is I have memories of this being an incredibly creepy episode. Oh. And I don't know exactly why, I but the way that it's shot and the way the music's done, I was kind of waiting for Mrs. Williams to like do something bad. Yeah, I was... <laughs> Knife I, them. <laughs> given, that, given that other episodes of this series deal with child abuse, not that we're talking about those episodes, yeah. Now, I kind of, having remembered that it dealt with some pretty dark stuff, and there's all that misdirection with her waking up and, like, yeah. suddenly remembering as things. As a kid and as both, uh, as, a, as, you know, as, a, yeah. as a teenager as well, yeah. Like, like, like coming downstairs and seeing seeing the grotesque bookend yeah. and being shocked by it. It's, it's all very... Yeah, because 16-year-old Linda is having nightmares as she remembers yeah. this stuff, and that there are some quite lovely moments where her mother actually... Who, doesn't appear a lot in the series, but comes back oh, now and yeah. then. Her mother comes down and does the whole, you know, you're still my baby. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> Don't and, say it, Mum. <laughs> <laughs> but there is this whole tone underneath that, as a kid, is all I remember, which is this dark tone. Yeah, and, that actually doesn't... And it's misdirection. Yeah, it is like, misdirection. Like, and you're expecting it to be some sort of traumatic experience. Mm. And then it turns out that, you know, she was lost, this lovely old lady yeah. looked after her. But I didn't and, remember the ending, I just remember being yeah. scared. And the, her sort of, her sense of guilt. Yeah. She sort of, because I, she never went back to yeah. Jasper yeah. Street to visit And then she goes rooms. back, and then she comes to the front door, yeah. and, and she's like, they're like, you know, you, you don't know us, you, like, when we were six years old, you know, you know, I got lost, and, and you were really nice to me, and she's, and she's like, I don't expect you to remember me, and she's like, you better come in. It's yeah. like Jasper. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's called Jasper Street. Like I think no, 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 it's no, not no, really. No, is no, it? no, it's not. No, because she, she calls herself too. Jasper. Yeah. She says her doll's called Jasper. She's clearly learned the word. Well, because when she's stopped <laughs> by the, the, yeah, three, when the kids, three kids, yeah, when the three kids are bullying her, saying you don't even know who you are. Which street are you? Which street? Are you on? She says, "Oh, it's Jasper Street." <laughs> yeah. Which is just a complete bluff. Well, that's yeah. how she's remembered it. Yes. I think too that this episode does directly address the "Is Linda a monster?" question. Because everyone wants to let Linda off the hook for making this promise as a six-year-old and not keeping it. Mm. But she says, no, actually, this is really typical of me. Yeah. This is what I'm like. You know, like, I'm, I think there's even a line where she says, sometimes I think I might not be a very nice person. <laughs> and that's a kind of wonderful understatement after. <laughs> and particularly watching six-year-old Linda and... <laughs> you sit there and go, this isn't, this isn't teenage angst, this isn't adult comedy, this is just her being a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, say to this wonderful guy who will do anything for her, mm. no, it's not your birthday and I'm going to hide your present. <laughs> or no other reason than just because she can. But do you think that's because we're watching it through adult eyes and we expect better of characters? Children behave like that all the time. Yeah, yeah, mm. but but children children aren't you know like children and teenagers and stuff aren't an undifferentiated mass you know like no so but like no, Linda's a horrible product. child and a horrible teenager and a kind of horrible <laughs> adult. It is a thing in drama, particularly television, to show a unlikable mm. character. And show them that they actually were quite nice and innocent as a kid. Or give a reason. <laughs> and she doesn't even get that. Yeah. Or give a reason for why they're nasty. That's right. She doesn't even get that. Just, no, no, she's always been unpleasant. <laughs> oh, we do meet her mother later, remember? No, we don't. We meet Spike's mother, who's no, played we, by. We meet her mother. No, 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 sorry. We meet Spike's mother, who is. Yes. Yes. Uh, mm. As an adult, <laughs> played by Control from Ghostlight. <laughs> oh, I'd forgotten that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a bit much, that one. But <laughs> we're not there yet, we're not there yet. Watching it again now, look, it, it is lovely, but 
there is, yeah, there's something very unpleasant. I found I'm very uncomfortable out of it. And I think it is just realising that this poor old lady really was treated quite, not nastily, but dismissively by Linda. And that sits very badly with me. Yeah. But then, you know, she's six years old, as we've said. Yeah. And, you know, for a six-year-old to forget and not keep a promise is something that is understandable, but she still feels bad about it. So it kind of shows the other side of Linda, which she does have a soul. She does have, yeah. you know, the potential to yep. feel bad about her actions. Uh, can I also, just to sort of break topic here, uh, the, a shout-out to Mr. Sullivan and how he saves the universe? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to exactly that. So, so PC Ron Smollett from The Bill. <laughs> who yeah, gets oh. these wonderful lines about how there's a wormhole that's open in the space-time continuum. Mm-hmm. And so it's... Frustrated Doctor Who fan trying <laughs> to make the show that... It absolutely is, but <laughs> yes. I had no idea at the time that Stephen Moffat was, you know, a fan of Doctor Who, or would go on, obviously go on to write Doctor Who, but it is just there from the start, and mm-hmm. like it reads like a script from season five or something like that, this idea that the, the, the bookend, which he actually solves uh, initially to sort of say this is what it actually is, is something that's, you know, travelled from forward in time, from back in the past, just to torment Linda. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been wonderful if there hadn't been a bookend? <laughs> and, and it just been left up in the air for you to wonder whether there actually was a rip in the space-time continuum. That would have been great. He does actually nearly do that sort of thing in some episodes later on. Like, he, he's very strange. Mr Sullivan is another one of those father figures. He's yeah. the deputy uh, principal, I think, in Linda's English teacher. Yes, yes. And, and the one who links the senior gazette yeah. up with, with the school to form the junior yeah. gazette. And in the first two seasons, she very, very frequently is just waiting outside the staff toilet during morning break <laughs> she needs, to emerge. She needs his advice. Yeah, yeah. She, he, he just comes out of the toilet and there she is and it happens all the time. And, and she does comment, I think, in this episode about how regular he is. And she says, you really must have a very heavy breakfast. <laughs> But he does get that wonderful final one at the end of the scene together where having explained that the reason why there are two apparently unique items is because they are bookends. And then she says, well, can you tell me how to find this person? Yes. Well, what, what, do you, what, what do you want from me? I just say the universe. And it's just one of those very clever scenes. And he is fantastic in this series. Yeah. Um, and he comes back fairly regularly. And in fact, he's in that season four episode in a very different but related role. Yes, the Guardian Angel. Literally the Guardian Angel, yes. So, yeah, look, I've, I've enjoyed watching that one again. I wouldn't have it if you hadn't put it forward for this season. So oh, I'm you. glad. Yeah, no, my, my absolute pleasure. And I think this remains as my number one pick of all of the Quest Game episodes. Mm. Wow. So it's pleasantly lighter. I mean, <laughs> whilst also being quite deep um, <laughs> than all the other episodes that we're talking about today. <laughs> Speaking of episodes that are less than pleasant, uh, Nathan, you're going to take us through our pick for Series 3. So, Series 3, they've suddenly left school and uh, they're running the paper commercially and we've not on location anymore, we've got a set that looks like the previous location. Mm. Uh, We're cut down to to 6 episodes instead of 12 and 13. So the scale is much smaller. And he devotes two of those episodes to a big event episode. So it's called The Last Word Part 1, Last Word Part 2. And I want to look at at Part 2. And what we learn at the beginning of Part 1 from news reporters is that there's been a gun siege at the Junior Gazette. 
and one of the main characters has been shot and killed. Uh, and and we see a wreath and all that. Yeah, yeah. We, we get this uh, sort of guy turns up in a clown mask with a gun at the Junior Gazette offices, and it's intercut with all of these... Um, news reports about the death of someone mm. and so it's made very clear that someone's going to die and in the first episode we the only person that we see alive is Franz so we don't know who it is that's died who of the major characters has died and the first episode in an absolute such a moffety moment <laughs> has everyone except for the main characters is let go from the gun siege. Mm. And so usually that set is full of like 20 people going back and forth. There's always lots of extras, uh, some of whom you, you, know, you get to know their names sure. and stuff like mm. that. Uh, but it's usually a very busy route. But all of those extras, just in case it, you thought he might cheat by having someone that we <laughs> didn't know about be killed, they all get released by the gunman. And so, so the, the episode ends with uh, just our main characters there confronting the gunman and episode two doesn't use the reporters as a framing device it actually opens at the at the person's funeral and so we know that someone has died and uh, at the funeral is uh, we eventually see Sarah mm-hmm. at the funeral so we know that she's not the person who is killed she I don't know that we've talked about her she's a very writerly character yeah and was originally the competitor with Linda Lee, the editor mm. and although he's the better writer was not better editor because mm. she's not a monster yes <laughs> basically yes, yes. And she's talking to Hugh Corshi, who is in The Phantom Menace, yes. and is also in Daleks in Manhattan. Yes. And he's the policeman who's investigated uh, the thing, and he's going to give the eulogy at the funeral. And we don't see any of our characters. We, we keep cutting back to the funeral. Sarah gives the detective inspector a, a handwritten, like a, a typed account of, of what's gone on in the siege and he reads it and that's that creates the flashbacks that we see and for me this is the third story like the th- we've we've discussed three episodes and i think it's telling that the three ones that we've discussed have this sort of strange narrative thing mm. where moffat uses flashbacks and tells parallel stories and does it really skillfully in different ways and he's super careful so we only see people at the funeral once it's been established that they have been let go by the gunman. Mm-hmm. And of course... They're kind of drip-fed fr- drip yeah, back yeah. Into, into the so present day. Colin mm. is actually shot by the gunman, and, and, uh, but he, it's a minor wound and he gets taken out. Once he's taken out, we see him at the funeral. And we don't know who's alive. And of course the last two left are Spike and mm-hmm. Linda. And it's called The Last Word because they've been fighting <laughs> and each of them has to have the last word <laughs> in all of their conversations. And what ends up happening is that Spike persuades the gunman to let Linda go. Mm-hmm. Linda tries to persuade the gunman to let Spike go. Sp- Spike is left behind. Linda leaves, and then we see her at the funeral. 
and the only possible person left that we haven't seen is Spike and Linda's super distressed at the funeral they're singing a hymn she's trying to find the hymn in the hymn book and she's clearly super upset and then a hand reaches in and helps her to find the hymn and it's Spike and what is so good about it what is so good about it is the clever way that the flashback and the main story interact but also what's good about it is Moffat's refusal to tell the story that we think he's going to tell mm-hmm. and it's something he does in Doctor Who all the yeah. time yeah. where you sort of think that a story is going to go a particular way and maybe an unpleasant way and it, it doesn't do that you know it the, that reaches its apotheosis in the way he structures his two parters. Yeah, where he's like, I, well, no, no, yeah. any two parter. Oh, right, yeah. yeah, like, and 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 he does it in series one with um, with empty child Doctor dances. Uh, and I think there's a quote from him at the at the time when he was writing that, that a two parter should never pick up from where the other one left off. Mm. Yeah, like, you yeah. should never know where this story is going it shouldn't mm. just follow the narrative in a straight line it should twist and head off in another direction but I also think too you, you know things like Heaven Sent where it looks like the Doctor's out for revenge for Clara's that's death right. but it doesn't go that way because that's terrible mm. that's you know fridging someone and then you know toxic masculinity she, you, know, you mean how revenge so, oh yeah, I get that mixed yeah, up all the too. time. Um, <laughs> I'm convinced that there was a swap on this picture. Yeah, 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 that's right. They do have the wrong name, don't yeah. they? And, and so what he does here is you, the gunman turns out to be just a really screwed up kid called Donald, played by Christian Anholt, the very, very pretty... Captain Perkins or whatever from, from Curse, Curse of, of Family. Yes, yes. Um, one of my earliest childhood. <laughs> <laughs> he's the one that he's the one that Sophie Aldred flirts badly with. Isn't he? <laughs> no, 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 no. He's, he's the, the one, one that smashes up. Smashes up the radio. That's right. Sorry. He had very deep memories. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Very sweet. Um, and. And he's screwed up, and he's having a terrible time. And Linda, all the way through, promises that if he puts the gun down and just leaves them, she won't let anyone know. I made you a promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's so... Like, it's not just that she's trying to save them, though obviously there's that, but there's a whole heap of sympathy for him. You know, like, he's not just some dumb gunman. He's not just a villain. No one in in Press Gang is ever just an out-and-out villain. And we have so much sympathy for him. And... And he he shoots himself. It's one of how many deaths do we have in Press Gang Four? I think. Would you count? I can think of at least four. Yeah, Would you count I'm the last episode? Yeah, you, <laughs> so well, including no. No, I, I can, I'll tell you about that because I spoke to Moffat about that. And he said <laughs> casually dropping a name. <laughs> but so they save him. You know, like what happens is. It's Donald's funeral, but no one has been told that he 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 lost it and went in and threatened people with a gun. Mm. And so they're they're burying him as a hero who saved the other people. Mm. It's so beautiful and so humane. But there's that great bit where Sarah gives the uh, the, the detective, the, the inspector, like a, a note with an explanation of what actually yeah, happened, yeah. and then says. But do you want to be the person who 
you know, this poor stuffed up kid, he, you know, just made a mistake and he killed himself. Yeah. Mm. Who would benefit uh, from who that? Who would mm. benefit from that? Like, you'd destroy his family, you know, what's the point of this? And the last, the last scene is the inspector deciding to do the humane thing yeah. and not yeah and and not out him as as the gunman yeah. he gets up seconds after he learns what really happens mm. and says today we come to you Time know pay our moment. respects to yeah. hero yeah. yeah yeah it's beautiful so i've got so much i need to say about all <laughs> um, the first point i think is really important to make though is i think that for the general population this is the most memorable episode mm. of chris game uh, yeah. if you're talking to people basically of any of our ages and you say oh you talk about shows you used to watch as a kid until a press game. They'll say, "Yes, that one with the guy with the, with the clown mask." Like this is the image that stands out. Yeah, you memory. might be right. Yeah, and, and it is a phenomenal image of just that. I mean, it's the Stephen King thing. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The scary clown, something that Doctor Who would do two years earlier in Greatest Show of the Galaxy. Mm. Uh, but it is a really affecting image. And you're right; it is incredible that underneath that is this boy who basically got a bit of a temper because the, the Junior Gazette wrote an article that said that anybody who wants to use a gun is basically a psychopathic killer and will need to ban guns, noting this is before Columbine, before Port Arthur, yeah, yeah. before Dunblane in the UK, yeah. when gun ownership was much easier and simpler and a thing. And so he goes in just to sort of show them that, no, no, no I really am a man, and things get out of control. The police are called, but Linda specifically says not to, and that escalates them situation to a point where he can't get out. That's Colin's fault. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and yeah, so you get all of these sort of things going on. And he He's shown to be such a small person, or such mm. a, not, not small in a nasty way, but small in a, just a big world, like a small yeah. kid in a big world. Drowning. Yeah, yeah drowning. It's yeah, confused, he's conflicted. He probably actually wasn't just trying to make a point. He was actually hurt by them saying yes, this. He wasn't just going... Hey, look! I'm a real man. It was, I, I, I'm a gun owner. I like to hunt things. That like you've hurt me, and I'm going to shock you back. Mm. He never had any any intention to actually kill anyone. He does say that. He says, "I just wanted to scare you." Yeah, Yeah. and then it gets out of his control. But there are wonderful moments of escalation as well. Like the point where they're saying, "Look, you clearly think you can get yourself out of this because you haven't shown us your face, so you would can't identify you." And then you just see the mask on the yeah. desk. And says, like it falls into it, shot. It, it yeah, yeah we don't see him take it off. Mm. It's wonderful. And he says that line, I really don't think I'm getting out of this. He's like, oh, okay, this is now mm. going on yeah. another level. Colin coming back in and getting wounded takes it to another level. And you get all of those moments. It's not in this one, it's in part one, but the moment where Kenny tries to go, so, you know, they Spike sets the um, alarm clock to distract him and then Kenny tries to go from him but can't quite reach him before he can get the gun pointing at Kenny. And Kenny stops. And the way Lee Ross plays it is this moment of, genuine terror like yeah. if this guy pulls the trigger now that's it he's astonishingly good in yes. this episode yes uh, so there's a whole lot of good stuff in there can we talk about Linda and Spike because mm. it's called the last word as you said Nathan it's all about them having this thing you've always got to have the last word and you didn't mention your summary the reason why the gunman keeps Spike and not Linda is because he wants to hurt Linda now because she's been nasty to him all through the last two episodes and he realises the best way to hurt her is not to kill her, but to kill Spike. Yeah, yeah. And to me, this is sort of the, the high point of that Linda-Spike relationship. And it never quite works from here on in, because having gone here, you either now consummate that or you don't. Yeah. And, and the will they, won't they, I think just never quite works again from this point on. Mm. What do you guys feel about all that? I think, you know, television 
is always more interesting when you don't know whether they will or they won't. Yeah. So in that regard, there's definitely sort of like a dramatic climax or high point at the end of those three series that comes with this moment, and I don't doubt that. I still think that antagonism, though, that, that sort of exists between them maintains all the way throughout the five uh, seasons as well. So it's kind of like Moffat wanting his cake and having it too yeah. in some ways. But I think you're right. I mean, there's a number of things that mean that, you know, in, in the last two two seasons, things don't quite feel the same way, not just between Linda and Spike, but I think just in terms general, generally, yeah. and I think, Nathan, you've mentioned that as well. But... I, I still think that they're still so watchable. They're still so likable. You want to see how this story plays out. And so even in the last oh, two Oh, they're still two incredibly well written in the yeah, last two seasons. Yeah. There are still returns in the last two seasons. Yeah. I just think they're diminishing returns from this Yeah, you're probably on. right, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think he deliberately changes the status quo. So for the first half, season and a half, Spike is chasing Linda. <laughs> then they get together, but it doesn't work out. Yeah. And and they break up and that's kind of heartbreaking and then they have a sort of detente and they're sort of on good terms at the end. But he leaves um, because she won't tell him he that he that she loves him. Uh, and then when he comes back from America in series three, she's pursuing him and he's not interested. <laughs> and so he turns it around. And then I think by series five, they just abandon the whole thing and they're just together. Yeah. And by then they're young adults. And I mean, it's fairly strongly indicated that they um, are having sex, I think. Um, uh, there, there are definitely references about him being in a bedroom. Like, yeah. there are lines that against the kids would never notice, but as now that you go, yeah. that wasn't just a reference to her being in a bedroom. Like, <laughs> it was a reference to her being in her bedroom. Mm. He's a, a running thing in Series 3, which the last word is from, is that um, she's stolen his passport so that he can't leave England. <laughs> and he says to her, sooner or later, I'll make you give it to me. And she says back to him, oh, yes, I will. Yes. And, uh, you know. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so there's, there's, <laughs> so there is a little bit of that, and that's a little bit more adult. And I think series five, I think we'll talk, sort of yeah. starts becoming a sex comedy, and so the two of them are together for. for he starts you know, writing sex comedy; that. it doesn't stop for the yeah, next twenty yeah, years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also see a recurring character in this, Billy Homer. Yeah, yeah. my my views of Billy Homer have changed up and down, up and down, and back and forth over the years. So Billy Homer, as a kid, is introduced. In late season one, in episode six or seven, yes. yeah. So he's, he's he's a young lad who has been paralysed from the. Well, it, it says from the neck down. He can clearly move his arms at some point. So he he operates his computer with his mouth. It's, it's a little yeah. inconsistent. Yeah. The, yeah, but the actor is himself. Yeah. He's tetraplegic. Is right. the word that he uses. Right. So he, yeah, he's he's paralysed. And so he's a character that, through a very long convoluted episode, becomes a writer for the Junior Gazette and mm. he wants to do it via the newly discovered internet um, but Linda won't let him she insists he has to actually come to the, 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 and become a part of the team and that's all very nice and they do lots of jokes with this character about him or, or self-knowing jokes with him yeah. for example there's an episode where someone leaves him at home and says how's paralysis and he says oh she's resting and you go down and see the little dog bed with paralysis in <laughs> the dog's <called> paralysis. <laughs> <laughs> as a kid I thought it was hilarious in my 20s I thought it was really quite Offensive. <laughs> Offensive and discolourful. And now I kind of think it's good on some days and bad on others. Yeah. It's a really 
interesting character. He does, in this one, sort of just become the voice of God in some ways, and that we need someone to have some information or do something for the plot. I know Billy Homer can do that. I, I think it depends whether that character owns that humour. Yeah. Did those jokes actually come from the actor, or did they come from Moffat? If they came from Moffat, it's problematic. If they came from the actor, mm. I, I, I accept it a little more. But it is still... Yeah, it's a fine line to tread. It's another attempt at inclusion and diversity, which yes. I think is very good. And I'm, and I'm glad it's yeah. there, even if it's not perfect for that yeah. reason. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a way of, of doing diversity where you kind of overlook the real difficulties that people in minority groups face. And I think that this generally does a pretty good job. You know, he's smart and stuff, um, and he... You know, he has things to contribute, and 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 things. You know, I think it's a slightly awkward performance from a child actor too, which kind of doesn't yeah. help. Yeah, I, I think Dave, you, Dan, and I, when we did the Tenth Planet on Who mentioned in the '60s kind of way they tried to get like international sort of representation on that. Yes, and it looks in a very 60s way to modern yeah. day audiences in the same <laughs> way the Italian guy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. go get me some minority yeah, exactly but doesn't he have a, a, a Mario moustache that guy oh yeah yeah and he's constantly talking about women and stuff like yeah. he's an absolute stereotype but you know Tenth Month has the his brother's the black astronaut. Astronaut. it does yeah. so, so and again there's, there's good points and there's bad points clumsy yeah. points and well made points in the one this is the 1980s equivalent almost in some regards yeah. now we have representations of a largely unrepresented minority group I keep saying representation is reality. It's important to yeah. have these characters on screen, and sometimes it's clumsy, sometimes it's well done. And but at least it's there. But at least it's there, right? And it presages away, or at least sort of you know breaks um, you know ice ahead of it, so that later on we have you know increasing representation of, of, of minority mm. groups. So, but I, you're right. There are there are instances where it's like that's too close to the <laughs> bone, and there's instances where it's like good on them for doing that, yeah. for trying that. Exactly. Because the one thing is that there's one person in the main cast who's black, um, Fraz, mm. uh, who is an idiot. Mm. And, then, and I think Moffat has said in an interview how kind of disappointed or appalled he was that when he learned of the casting that, that yes, we've got a black person, oh my God, they're playing Fraz. <laughs> <right." laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think... That he does a good job with a terrible, stupid yeah. character. Though. Oh yeah, you know, like, yeah, yeah. He's he like he imbues that character with with honor and uh, like yeah, and like but, but like that, that that character is really honorable. I mean, yeah. is that written that way or is that well, the I actor bring that? The writing to the part changes is, because you watch yeah. Fraser in the first two or three episodes. Mm. He's actually quite an unpleasant. Like he's he's the guy who's been punished by the school on work yeah. the paper. Yeah. yeah, he's a naughty boy. He's, he's, naughty. Just he's like a knuckle dragger. Yeah. yeah, but I think it's <laughs> and, and you can probably pick the moment when Moffat meets the actor. <laughs> yeah, and suddenly he writes him in this very loyal sure. and, and and he's he's done he's done in a likable, lovable, loyal loyal. And there's yeah. also a kind of refusal to give much of a crap as well. Yeah. You know, like he's constantly got his feet up on the table and stuff like that. So he's not dumb so much as kind of lazy. slightly disengaged. <laughs> <laughs> Even lazy yeah. doesn't help, does it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> he does get that hero moment though when he sets up the dark room in this Yeah, episode. yeah, yeah. Again, very smartly yeah. too. Yeah. And, and and some of his lines, although they are a sign of unintelligence by the character. They're very clever. Yeah. Or a lack, a lack of education yeah, uh, or, or engagement well. with education over actual intelligence, I think. Yeah, is that's a very clear. Mm. Can I ask you all the question, 
after the camera is turned off in the press scan universe, what do you think actually happens next? Does the inspector rip up the letter and never think about it? Does he go back to the police station and say, look, yeah. we've, got, look we've, we've solved this crime, <laughs> but we can't tell anybody about it? Because I, I remember, even as a kid, I remember watching that, thinking it was amazing and brilliant and all the rest of it, but going, what does this guy do? Like, you have an unsolved murder. Yeah. And if you go back, you know, Donald Cooper's parents spend the rest of their lives going, we don't know who shot our boy. And this, and this guy does. Like, it's wonderful. Find a cold case. Well, it's wonderful, but the loose ends, you, you just can't see them staying that loose forever. It's, mm. it's... I, I just think that he punts that. You know, like just because there is a yeah. moment where the inspector calls into the station, doesn't he? Because he's got to the bit in the story where Donald takes yes. off his mask and says who he is yes. and he's about to call and then Sarah's narrative says don't do anything you would regret mm-hmm. wait till mm. you've read the entire yeah. thing mm. so I just think that that's one question that we're, we're not meant to ask it's this fridge is, logic this is also <laughs> the press game universe and in the same way that we have the who universe it's not our universe <laughs> these problems disappear <laughs> but I, I did think that Sarah giving the inspector of information at the funeral is the equivalent of proposing to someone in public, yeah. knowing that they can't make the wrong decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, she. I think she yeah. absolutely. absolutely. Says it. Yeah. And and the, it's wonderful that he finishes reading her account. Just like he's got the account in one hand, he's got his eulogy. his eulogy in the other hand, and he has to get up and walk over to the pulpit and give the eulogy. And he even says to her, "You picked a great time to tell and me." And she says, "Timing, timing is important." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think she says that twice. In the yeah, 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 yeah. Before yeah. and after. Yeah. Mm. The note, I think of that as an antecedent of the whole diary of River Song. It's, it's you know, him working on this idea of telling a story through a book yeah. backwards. It's it's you know it's not the same it's not the same structure, but you can quite obviously see his fingerprints on on this. Yeah, no, I, I think and, it's and a preferred through to it, storytelling for you, yeah. isn't it? Like, yeah. linear just doesn't work for Moffat. Yeah. It has to be clever and you know backwards and forwards and but parallel he does each other. Notes and and stories and recordings and telephones. Like all of those, mm. the, the those little things. notes in series six that get them all into the plot. In yeah, yeah, one. all of that yeah. is so Moffaty. Yeah, mm. yeah. But I'll tell you my Moffat story later. <laughs> <laughs> so look, I think it's fair to say that the last word is extremely memorable, extremely well written. It's a marvelous piece of film. Yeah. We'll now move on to our representative episode from season four, which is Unexpected, <laughs> which was the second episode of season four. It's the 33rd overall, now to January 1992 with this one. Mm. Now, this is the one that I think when we started planning this podcast, we sort of said collectively, this <laughs> has to, to be it, in yeah. there. <laughs> because this is, this is Moffat's self-hating Doctor Who fan <laughs> writing an episode. And isn't Unexpected spelt without the E? Yes. yes. Um, Yes. yes. Um, So this is an episode where it's all about the gang remembering the 10th anniversary of a slightly dodgy but much loved children's TV series about a mysterious character (laughs) played by Michael Jaston who played a unofficial, dodgy, complicated, possible incarnation of the Doctor. <laughs> Just when you think, is this really about Doctor Who? Michael Sheer turns up as the guest Absolutely. star. Absolutely. <laughs> Attack of the Side with Brian Glover is in it. Yes. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Michael Sheer is like that, you know, you know he's yeah. in like six five different, or six, five yeah. or six yeah. stories, yeah. I think I counted 
seven. No, really. Yeah. Well, he turns up with six. He's in the arc. Yeah, she's in the yeah, arc. He's yeah. also in one, at least one big finish. Uh, Everybody's been big um, Stones of Venice. Oh god, I think I was in the big I think that's oh, yeah. one of the last <laughs> one of the last things that he did before he died. I think. Oh, really? So, uh, look, the, the, the framing device of this is that Fraz is given this unwanted task of doing the 10-year retrospective about this show, about Colonel X. He gets mugged in an alleyway and the character, Colonel X, turns up to save him and it sort of all goes from there, how is this possible, etc., etc. And some of the best bits, I think, that you mentioned this, James, are the actual watching episodes of... Uh, of of Colonel X which is just brilliant so there's a scene uh, where he's doing his research and he's researching for this article and he's he's watching the episode but we pan across all this merch and there's like novelisations and Radio Times covers (laughs) and old VHS's I I love that I particularly love it because like he's watching it and it doesn't live up to his memories yeah so I love this as a kid and now it's a bit crap and Maybe that was us also when we were 16, 17, 18. It's certainly Moffat in his 20s. <laughs> like, Moffat has said very scathing things about... I mean, he's stopped saying that for <laughs> a decade or so. But he has said very scathing things about um, the the classic series. It's, it, it, it's most of us in our 20s. It's like, I'm going to the Doctor Who convention to get drunk, not to meet Nicola Bryant. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that that's a particular time in, in Moffat's life. Because, uh, you know, he does does bring back in uh, in coupling in the final series there's a character who is a Doctor Who fan who works at a science fiction bookstore and who talks about the recovered episodes from <laughs> Dalek's master plan and stuff so I think he's back on board by the time he's writing that uh, the show itself is a little bit Avengersy, actually, really. More Avengers. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit spy-fi, yeah. isn't it? But it has robot replicas. <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is robot so replicas. He <laughs> rolls his eyes. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. Um, no, it is a bit more Avengers. It's a bit more spy-fi. You know, he's much more of a, a John Steed type of character. You know, with yeah. his cane and you know gizmos and whatever else. Um, but I still think it inhabits that sort of yeah. 1960s British mediascape of. Um, Doctor Who and the Avengers and I don't know what you could call it but it's kind of like a cool Britannia that existed at that time British tele-fantasy yeah yeah. the thing about it is it's not timey-wimey at all this is our first non this is completely linear but what it does ironically well, what it does is it plays with a TV convention in a very moffity way. So, Fraz starts to see Colonel X, who the actor has died in a car crash. A kind of a car crash. It just makes me think of Roger, Roger Delgado. Like yeah. that's a, you know that's that's all I can think about. And he's died in a car crash. And so when he visits Fraz, uh, Fraz thinks he's hallucinating. Mm-hmm. And no one actually hallucinates like that. That only happens in TV programs where someone, you know, like someone appears and talks to you and and stuff like that. And there's a scene in the newsroom at night where Colonel X is talking to Fraz and Fraz is ignoring him because he doesn't want to seem mad in front of Tidlet. And Tidlet turns to him and says, why are you ignoring that yeah. nice man? And it turns out that, in fact, he's been there all along. He's, he's cute. <laughs> so let's, again, if you haven't seen this episode, pause now, go watch it. Cause yeah. we're <laughs> Thank you. Now, we then get to the, the, the twist of it all, which is that the actor didn't die in a car crash, but after he left the series playing Colonel X, he was so typecast he couldn't get more work. 
he says that he turned to alcoholism. It's implied that that's what caused the car crash in which his yes, wife died. Yeah. He doesn't say, I'll, I'll watch it very carefully, he doesn't say it implicitly, no. but he certainly blames that for the car crash mm. that killed his wife, but he survived. And, and he felt uh, this, utter, this guilt. utter guilt yeah. for that. And so this is a, somebody who has so damaged by playing this role that he's escaped into this role and now just pretends that he actually is Colonel X because that's better than being himself. He says you'd have to be mad to want to be John England. Yes. <laughs> and that is such a clever twist that you almost don't notice that it's such a sad twist. Yeah. Like, this is a really sad thing. And it does make me wonder then what is Moffat saying about the show and some of the actors who played them. And the one that came to my mind was John Pertwee, who, yes. although he had many great roles after Doctor Who, he really never felt that he could escape being Doctor Who, by the end of his life, Perp is famous for being the one who would just turn up anywhere you asked him to in the costume yeah. playing the third Doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there is, I don't think Perp's life was tragic, but there is something incredibly tragic about this. But it's done so well that you don't notice until you think about it. Yeah. I, th- I don't think it, it really properly works in the sense that it's it's TV logic mm, and yes. TV <laughs> madness. Yes. You, know, you know, like... But there's just that sweet thing where... Michael Sheard's character turns up to take him back to the mental hospital and and Fred says, Oh, I think you know, I think we've got this. And give us a couple of hours. Give us a yeah. couple more <laughs> hours. And and then Linda sits down and has a romantic yeah. dinner with so, him. Yeah. So there's sweet. been a B plot. Yeah. There's been a B plot where Spike has bet Linda <laughs> that she can't get a date. Because this is after they've broken if up. If she can get a date, he'll cook because he's cooked and in the, the newsroom. <laughs> he's cooked in the newsroom in a previous episode. And he can he can good teenage cook. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and indeed, just to give it that that press gang depression thing, we learn that Spike's a really good cook because his father is negligent. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And his mother's gone. Yeah. 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 When he was a kid, that's what he thought her name was. Yeah. I'm so leaving. leaving. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, 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 you, you think this is a nice quirk? Oh, he's interesting cooking. No, no. He had to learn to yeah. cook. Yeah. Sorry, I keep going. So, so, so there's a candlelit dinner. He, she has no date. And then when Michael Jason turns up and isn't a hallucination, she invites him to dinner. He's absolutely charming and just wonderfully lovely yeah. and the final shot which is just so annoyingly poverty <laughs> as well is he's talked before about having a flamethrower in his rear yeah. and so someone has blown out the candles I think they've blown out the candles on the table because they think the date's not going to happen so the final shot is him getting his ring and relighting all of the <laughs> candles on the table with the flamethrower in his ring which just makes us think well maybe he is Colonel Alex really after all yeah. it's also really clever because the a and the B plot come together at yeah. the end there. And this is another feature of Moffat's writing, I think. You know, separate strands that don't seem to be connected often do come together in the most elaborate and sort of baroque ways at the mm. end of the, the plots. So I really appreciated that too. But again, goes back to Spike and Linda. Neither of these will give ground to the other. But, you know, I've found a date. You now have to, to serve dinner. Well, it's another thing, too, where there's a moment where Linda kind of thinks, actually, the reason I can't get a date is that I'm not a very nice yeah, person. She says that, and yeah. no one likes me and no one wants to be in the room with me. And then when Michael Jason agrees to have dinner with her, she's so elated at beating Spider <laughs> in the bed that she completely forgets any of that growth at all. And it keeps that down growth for another episode. Yeah. But, but, like, this is 
this is where that quote to, to Colin comes from. Die soon. She convinced Colin to go on a date with her, and then he faked he faked being kidnapped by terrorists. Yes. <laughs> and then paid someone to shout. It would have been great oh. if the next episode he'd actually you know, been kidnapped and was somewhere in Saudi Arabia. I think there's somewhere. an extra line about him offering to send one of his, his fingers yes. to the <laughs> as proof like everyone's so desperate not to go on a take with Linda we need to mention specifically Michael Jason's performance here because oh, it is yeah. one of the most wonderful subtle gentle performances yeah. he was good as the Valier but this is such a totally different performance yeah and he does it really well but but his casting can't be coincidental no, given no. his role as the Valier absolutely it must be incredibly liberal. He's got such a sparkle in his eye. He's so charming. He's so likeable, isn't he? That little half smile all the time. He he sounds like he's he's savouring every line as well. Mm. I mean, that's a I think that's a very Michael Jason kind of way of delivering things. But but it's also that old fashioned kind of theatrical way of acting on TV Mm. too. Yeah. Yeah, which made him so brilliant as yeah. the value. Yeah. yeah, and even the bit where he starts talking about his background and why he's doing this and who he used to be in his mind, that stare into the middle distance that he does of just mm. sort of confronting something you can feel him confronting it in his mind. Mm. It's really incredibly mm. done. Yeah, and then he very happily retreats back into yeah. being kind of left. And I think we th- we're supposed to think that's okay. You know, that's the other thing. And in TV. We always have to confront the terrible things that we've done and that have happened to us. Try and fix them. And maybe not confronting them might be okay if that's what makes you happier. You know, there's Mm. nothing he can do about his wife's death or his role in it. And so he just escapes from it. And the Michael Sheard character as well plays against that TV trope Mm. where he's not the belligerent, difficult, technocratic official that says you must get back to the mental home. He just wants this guy to be safe and looked mm. after yeah. and, and, and if him being happy and having a couple of hours in the press gang room We'd, helps him well that's okay yeah. we can have which money. is much more believable absolutely, as a mental yes. health professional absolutely. yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, like mental health professionals are really poorly portrayed in a lot of media absolutely yeah, and no, nurse ratchet aren't they mm. yeah and, and this, is, this is sort of wonderful and yeah like again the fact that Michael Sheard is playing this character has two scenes but they've got Michael Sheard because it's basically Doctor Who yeah yeah so yeah it's really quite wonderful all right, well, we've all enjoyed that one, and look, I do recommend if you haven't seen any press game, do check out at least Unexpected. And, and the more. upcoming uh, Big Finish spin off as well. <laughs> <laughs> Over three boxes, price 19 99 <laughs> brings us to the final season and in fact the final episode which James we're making you take us <laughs> yes I didn't get a choice I was forced at gunpoint <laughs> we, we, we asked you 14 times before, and you didn't so we allocated you one <laughs> Yes, no, I didn't get to pick this episode and that was because I, I'm, I'm easy <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people believe this is not actually that strong an episode I actually really enjoyed it, and maybe that's because um, as I say, I haven't watched. I mean, look, I haven't watched. I haven't watched Press Gang since probably when I, I used to work at the ABC shop back in my early to mid twenties, and I, I had forgotten how dark the show could get. Mm. I mean, there were the standout episodes that you we all remember, but I had forgotten how dark it could get, and. This episode is just 
unremittingly sort of bleak and there the, you know, are moments of humour. It's Stephen Moffat, so he'll still find humour even when someone is trapped in a burning office uh, confronting their mortality. They're engaged with a football game, for example. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and look, there's just there's so much, so much humour there. And also, they've, they've got this character who you, know, you haven't seen since, since season one. And that's big. That's a, like a big risk to take. Uh, expecting the audience to remember a character that you haven't seen for four years and hasn't really been referenced that often. Yeah, so again, this is the moment to go away and watch the episode. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So it's David Jefford who comes back, who we referred to in Monday, Tuesday. We're f- flashing back to season one to J- David Jefford, the character who Linda blames herself for the suicide of. And this whole episode is really her coming to terms with the fact that she has carried this guilt since since Monday, Tuesday, mm. that she was somehow responsible for him taking his own life. I, I thought that was really brave. Whatever you think of the structure of the episode or, or whether it works, I actually think it works quite well, but, you know, it is very dark. Yeah, um, so, so, so the structure is that Linda has actually passed out in the newsroom mm. Which is now on fire. Yes. And now has that television thing of deciding does she want to live or not, which is mm. very television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, and so whole... the whole episode is flashbacks. Yeah. And mm. we think that she's in a psychiatrist's office, which is getting hotter and hotter, but it turns out that yeah, it's, it's, it's the a press room burning. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the, it's, it's reality trying to break through to her her unconscious yeah. mind, which is, is, knows on some level that she is going to die. Yeah. And is her it's really her flashing back to a moment in her life where she felt that she made a terrible terrible decision yeah. and and dealing with that it, like it comes out of that with her deciding spoiler alert that she that she doesn't want to die and that she wasn't responsible for for David's death you know she's she's blamed herself for it for the last four years, but she basically goes, no, that was your decision. I've, I was nasty to you, but that was your decision, and I'm not going to make that... De- I'm not going to take that, the easy route. And, and she wakes up, and then the episode basically finishes with, with her seemingly, you know, trapped in a burning building, not going to survive, and then you cut to Spike... In tears. In tears, yeah. because he he doesn't think she escaped from the burning well, building. He, he's told by the authorities yeah. no one no, could have got yeah. out. Yeah. And then you end up with this this wonderful scene where he's not sure whether he's asleep or awake, and and that's and 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 she appears covered in ash, and you're, you're like, is he asleep? Is he awake? And then. It freeze frames, and that's the end of the whole the whole show. Yeah. And you're left wondering, is it is she alive? Um, so they're about to kiss, aren't they? And they're they're going to kiss, to kiss, and then it and freeze, then it freeze frames. frames. So I spoke to Stephen Moffat, who came out to a Doctor Who Day event mm-hmm. uh, in 2005. We had him out, and 
Doctor Who had just started screening in the UK but hadn't started here. I don't think we got to his episode yet. No, we hadn't got to his episode. I asked him how he was going to work a telephone joke into a Doctor Who episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, you know, and he did, of course. The uh, he's like, he's like waiting wait until yeah, November. He <laughs> about telephone jokes. And I said to him, did Spike wake up after kissing Linda? And he said, no, he didn't think he did. He thinks that Linda survives. And I think the reason is that Linda says things in that scene that only Linda... Only real Linda So the contract of 12,000 years with Colin would be one of those things? Yeah, just she mentions stuff. She she talks about things that we saw happen Mm. to her that Spike doesn't know about. Um, And I think there is that that dialogue. And so he thinks... And of course, there's no answer to that, is there? Because there isn't an after the kiss, because we never get that no. far. Had it been renewed... To me, it's like Blake 7. Had they done a Series 5, then half of them would yeah. have survived. They didn't do a Series 5, so they're all dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I missed, I missed the whole the whole driving force at the beginning of this episode, which is that they find uh, a member of the staff who's overdosed in the bathroom. Yeah. Who Linda just refers to as What's-His-Name, yeah. because yeah. she can't remember his name. But Spike knows who. who Spike knows it's him. Called Gary, I think. Yeah, Gary. I'm pretty sure it's Gary. He does actually appear, I think, in the background in series four and five, mm. and I think I spotted him watching TV with them in Bad News. So okay. I think he is in the background, and I think that the, there's a big clump of electrical. Um, uh, you know, like power boards and stuff, all plugged into one power point, which yes. eventually sparks and sets the thing on fire. And that's clearly visible all the way through those two scenes. Oh, yes. Mm. It's just lamp shading, really. I think it's, you know, just they steal a phone line in series one from their parent paper. They run that's a right. phone line. And, and, and Angela Bruce's character <laughs> finds <laughs> it. And she's like, I don't know about this. <laughs> okay, yeah. so, so, you know, like I think that's all sort of set up. I, I just don't know. This is one of the ones where he doesn't really know what he wants to do, and he leans too heavily into the plot the device, framing device. So, so, if I could have a crack at the thematics of this episode, yeah. you said at the start of the podcast, Nathan, this is a story about whether or not Linda is a monster. Yeah. Now, in television, and particularly in Doctor Who, if something's a monster, it is correct to kill it at the end yeah, of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> so, if Linda is a monster, then at some point before the series ends, she has to die. And so this is all about asking that question, is she a monster or is she not? And not resolving it. And not resolving it. And that further just takes me into the perception I had when I went back for the first time as an adult watching Press Down and the DVDs came out and I watched each series as I got them on DVD. And the first couple of seasons, Linda is incredibly unpleasant but in a teenage sort of way. Mm. Then Spike humanises her and makes her more of a real person. She starts to show actual sympathy and and humour and characters for others and they break off. But in Series 5, she's absolutely nasty. I just found her almost unpleasant, unwatchable in Series 5. Just an unpleasant adult person. And therefore, to have this at the end, you start to go, well, maybe, you know, when she's with Spike, she's just about a human being. But without him, she is a monster. So, yes, it is actually called There Are Crocodiles. And it starts with the most trite story about not putting your head in crocodile mouths. Which, <laughs> as you said, Nathan, I just, it felt to me like, a guy who writes a lot of very clever stuff 
suddenly going, you know what, I've got nothing. Um, don't put your head in the crocodile's mouth. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a lesson. I think that there's something... I think when you say that Linda's a horrible person in Series 5, I think that there's something happening with how the writing is being done. And I think when it's children and there's a school and we're in a real location, there's a hyper-reality, obviously. You wouldn't get, you know, kind of Professor X otherwise. Sorry, mm. that's not true because he's not in that bit. <laughs> there is a hyper-reality to it, uh, but it's still sort of a bit grounded. But by the final series, he's aching to write sex comedy. He's no longer writing real people, I think. And I think that everyone gets much bigger. Everyone does what they need to do in order for the plot to work. The previous episode, which I think is called Food, Love and Insecurity, or the episode two before, Linda is sort of jealous and and weird and silly in a way that she never was earlier on. And I think that I think that the Linda is a monster thing no longer becomes a coherent question because I think she stopped being a character. And I, there's a lot of the sex comedy in the last two seasons that I like that mm. I think is genuinely very funny, but I do think that the characterisation of all of the leads suffers. And I think the loss of the loss of Kenny as well unmoors her character too. It, it, that's another thing that takes the level of humanity away from her. Yeah. I agree with that. I don't think it's problematic, particularly in the way in which the series pays off and finishes. In this episode, there are crocodiles. I think what you have is uh, a real-ish redemption of the character. So she's, as you say, Jane, she's, she's carried this guilt since series one, and this is the point at which I guess she is able to absolve herself in that sort of very purgatorial fire kind of mm-hmm. way, or this, you know, the burning down of the, the press room. And she's able to, to come to terms with that. To what extent? Well, it isn't an, an entire redemption of the character. She isn't saintly in the same way that, you know, Scrooge is at the end of Christmas Carol. That's not the point here. Instead, she says she cares, but not very much. Yeah, yeah. You're and an incidental character in my yeah. story. It's sad that you're dead, but not that sad. Yeah, because you're an incidental character in my story. yeah. But uh, I think, I mean, in the context of season five, then yes, because she is no, no longer that sort of character that's mortal or particularly Mm. realistic, I think it pays off. I think it also speaks a lot to the way in which Stephen Moffat continues to write endings and continues to sort of play with ambiguity as a real um, sort of you know, aspect or facet of its writing. I think it's, I, I, I like it. I think it's clever. I think the, the ability to hold conflicting thoughts at once in, in you know, in, in a mind is, 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 you know, shows a level of intelligence. I think Moffat, you know, continues to show that in his writing as well. Is there a monster under the sheet in, in Listen? The answer is yes and no. You know, mm-hmm. was the doctor shot on the, on, the, on the shores of Lake Silencio? The answer is yes and no. Why is that the case? Well, I think there, it's that ambiguity, that ambivalence makes for far more interesting sort of areas for play and thinking and discussion. Like yeah, and a right whole series today. of adventures from Big Finish. Well, that too. <laughs> Moffat, that you otherwise wouldn't get. We have this way, uh, particularly science fiction fans, of um, thinking that all of the stories take place in a coherent world sure. and that they're not merely narratives. Elle Sandifer talks about gossip about imaginary people. <laughs> and and the first two series of Press Gang work that way. You mm. can see how the school year works. Yeah. You yeah. can see it all kind of fits together in a very in a very nice way. I think it's he completely abandons that here. Mm. And 
in life things really do happen but in narratives you know the narrative ends nothing happens after that you know the detective inspector doesn't go back to the police yes. station <laughs> and change his story that's because sure. that that's outside the narrative and that's all we have mm-hmm. and so he wants to play with narrative and all of these formal games that we've seen in all of these episodes with the flashbacks and the parallel storytelling is his obsession with stories and his Doctor Who yeah. breaks there's no way you can understand the Doctor's life as a single coherent <laughs> story after the end of series five, mm. um, and and that's what he that's what he likes to do. This is a story, and he's playing with storytelling. So we're now starting to move away from that episode into <laughs> a broader um, discussion, which is where we want to go before we shortly wrap up. To do that, I want to frame a question in this particular way. We've spoken about how there's an ambiguous ending to this episode. Does Linda survive or not? Mm-hmm. I can remember watching that as about a 13 year old mm-hmm. and finding it extra distressing because if you know she's alive that's fine you don't have to worry about the character you like dying mm-hmm. if you know she's dead you can mourn the character that you liked but not knowing as a 13 year old was a concept that just was mm. phenomenally that's distressing and left me really really cold right and, and and i struggled to go back and watch it again when i bought the dvds knowing what was coming i'd forgotten the last part of that last scene i just had the image of her as the silhouette in Spike's mm. that was all that was left on mm. you know, the mind's eye, if you mm. like. And so we've spoken about a lot of things. Would you show this to a 10-year-old kid today? That's a really difficult question to, to answer because I think it, you can't remove it from the context. Uh, I, like yourself, I was 13 and watched it at a point in time when I was distressed, but I also sort of coming to understand that this is the nature of the world. I was transitioning out of childhood into adolescence and beginning to understand that the world didn't have clear answers for me and that, you know, at the same time I was watching Peter Davison's Doctor on repeats and, and, and getting a very similar sort of understanding that, you know, you can't always win. It's the real world. Children's television is meant to be safe. Yeah. I, don't know if it's, I don't know if it is. Watching Doctor Who, I was terrified. As a kid. Watching the press gang, I was, quest- you know, questions, you know, all of these things that we've been talking about. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know if I'd... Sh- you could start to with it, you know, show me to a ten-year-old, and maybe they would sort of understand it. But uh, like yourself, I was sort of like just on that cusp mm. of, of, of adolescence where I was really starting to engage with these and the characters and the stories, and and they started to make more sense to me. So maybe ten's a bit young, but thirteen, yeah, absolutely. I think I think that this the, your comment about children's television is supposed to be safe. I think that's only something that's become the truth with mainstream children's television in the last 20 years. I don't think any of the the programs that we watched that were aimed at at the intelligent older child were actually that safe. No, I say it as a provocative question. Yeah. I mean, no, no, you no. Children, make children it. from the Stones is something you wouldn't do yeah. today, for example. You couldn't yeah. make it today. Yeah. And, and yeah. the sort of things that we've seen in this wouldn't even happen in Doctor Who now. So we have, uh, you know, the gunman in The Last Word pulling a gun and shooting Colin and Colin uh, falling down. Yeah. And you, you actually know, see you would blood never do as that. well. You, you have talk about suicide, including a detailed description of how David kills himself mm. by putting the shotgun in his mouth. You know, that would never... Never, ever, ever happen. The first two-parter is all about uh, the legacy of a child who overdosed on, on glue sniffing and, and yeah. jumped off jumped the top of a building. Yeah. There's another two-parter which is all about a child abuse. Child abuse. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, see, I think that you could probably do that. I don't think those are the things. I think there's a lot of gun violence... Okay. I, I think, think that's yeah, the, the gun violence that you couldn't have now. You, yeah, you I can't. think you could have a very special episode about, you know, like, yeah, because yeah. that, well, all that stuff about consent. In fact, 
you know, like I think that that might be something. I think that that's um, before its time, mm-hmm. like dealing with that. And that episode too, where he puts Colin, the comedy character, yes. in there, and he has to deal with it. But he's too stupid a character. Yes. He, not not a stupid person, but he's a, a trivial comedy character who's been given the weight of this incredible mm. kind of mm. um, uh, you know topic to deal with. I think that's a very very good episode, and I think you could do that now. I think it is mm. it is good. But there's heaps of stuff that I, I don't think you could do, and you can see him pushing it. By the same token, there's some of the stuff where we talked about them being very cagey about uh, sex. I think they're probably slightly less cagey right. right now. Yeah. Well, I think I think you would have more diverse thing. There's no hint of anyone being, you know, gay or queer no. or anything like that in it. And you would certainly, definitely have that now. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I think you'd also get it would like now it would be less innuendously about it being sex, and it would be more that these characters just were more engaged with their sexuality and it would be more about romance. Sure. It, w- it would be, I think there would be a more nuanced dimension to that. We need to move towards the end of this. Why should anybody who hasn't seen Preston before watch this show? It's just brilliantly written. <laughs> it's yeah, just brilliantly written. Really, really, really well written. And I think, you know, you've got Julia Sawala and Lee Bross, who are pretty good performances. There's a, a Gabrielle Anwar in oh. Series 2 is also very good. Uh, you know, there are a couple of good performances. There's a lot of really ropey ones. There's a lot of child actors. Yeah, Dexter Fletcher is not as bad as his reputation. Yes, he's not as bad as I remember. When he gets really good written, when he gets really well written and really dramatic stuff, he actually is very good. I think he's good. I think, you know, Moffat has expressed regret that he saddled him with that terrible accent, which is Mm. pretty bad. (laughs) Um, You know, it's, yeah, it is pretty, pretty terrible. He's he's the Perpiculean Brown. (laughs) (laughs) But, but. It's so well written. It's so good mm. and so funny. It's still some of the best stuff yeah. that Moffat has ever written. Yeah, yeah. and he's also a case of spot the Doctor Who actor all the way through. It's so incredibly moving. You yes. know, like it, often Moffat's Doctor Who left me cold, but they're really, really moving. You know, Absolutely. humane, lovely yeah. bits in it. I think. I think another reason is if, particularly if you are a fan of Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. Um, being able to go back and trace mm. some of those influences yes. and, and running themes and ways he plays, ways in which he plays with narrative structure in particular, all of that's there. And, and you said he was 25 when he started yeah, writing yeah. this. I, I'm going to say this again. I genuinely believe, in the same way that Russell T. Davis is, that we've had a television giant, yeah. uh, like a, a true immortal of television, uh, write for Doctor Who, and it starts here. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good note to finish on. I hope that you've all enjoyed listening to us reminisce about Press Ganger. I'm sure we've all enjoyed chatting about it, and yeah. we will um, chat again, I'm sure, about other things. But until then, I've been Dave. I've been Stephen. I've been Nathan. And I've been James. Goodbye. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Alternate Galaxies, the podcast where Rob and Dave from The Doctor Who Show take a look at other great sci-fi and fantasy that we think Doctor Who fans might like. You can reach us at hello at the dwshow.net, on Twitter at the dwshow, or on Facebook forward slash the dwshow. Alternate Galaxies is an irregular podcast, so stay tuned to the Doctor Who Show and other programs on our feed to know when the next episode's coming. Our theme music is called Wretched Destroyer and is by Kevin McLeod. Find him at incompetech.com. 
Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.